Happy 2020. Uh, can you, I, all right, so this is going to mean nothing to some of those that are were not even alive in the previous millennium. Um, but remember when you watched the Jetsons and things like that that would talk about kind of a futuristic future that was going to be unique and different? 2020 kind of was the, that line where all that was supposed to happen. We're still driving horse and buggy and cars with engines and so on, but they're now making a Mustang that's electric only. So maybe we're almost there. So uh, it's very strange to be in 2020. But, uh, but it's good to be here and alive, an opportunity to be here this morning. If you're new here, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LEFC. And uh, you've come on an interesting Sunday, if this is your first Sunday ever being here, because we're going to speak to the very essence of why we as a church exist. Why are we here, and what is our importance and our unique contribution to being in this part of the world? So my question then becomes, why church? Why are we even here? Why did you choose to get dressed up on a Sunday morning when most likely most of you had the day off? It could have been a, a sweatpants only day, prepare some hors d'oeuvres for the football games this afternoon, but instead you chose to come here. Something of value was maybe placed there inside of you as you were growing up. Maybe it was because uh, you grew up as a a family where Sunday going to church is what you did. The question is, why? Why even do this? Why do I, you know, some people, yeah, before I answer this next question, why? Some people think the only day of the week I work is today. <laughs> In fact, my father-in-law said that to me. Yeah, he's putting his hands up. He's like, what's it like working one day a week? Um, <laughs> yeah, for 20 minutes. I've got 35 and the clock is on right now. Um, why do we do this? Obviously, there's something important enough that we give our time to it. We've been preparing for an expansion here for years, prior to my even coming. And it was in 2013 that we began this particular process. And within 2014, we came up with this phrase called Project Open Invitation, which basically says we want to do a project that says we can just simply invite you. We can simply invite you, and we don't have to hesitate. Did my wedding that way. My wife and I, we were in ministry and uh, serving together at Hershey Free Church, and we're like, what do we do? All these kids that we've been, that have watched us date, watched us get engaged, are wanting to be at our wedding. So what do we do? Because we can't feed them all. That would be really expensive. Right, father-in-law? <laughs> you know, and so what we decided to do is do an open invitation wedding, but by invitation only to the reception. That's how we handled it. But in our situation and context as a church, we wanted to be able to continue as we live out our relationship with Jesus Christ and in our relationship as a church to be able to say, come, there's space for you, without hesitation. Which then meant our tagline, which we, we then did. So the, the launching of all of this four years ago 
was Project Open Invitation. But the tagline said, creating space because we are expecting harvest. So I want to dive into that last phrase because we're clearly creating space. It's been spending a lot of time working on that and resources. And we're close. Hopefully late February, early March. So I wanted to take four weeks here in the month of January to set our sights as a church. That we have the right heart, the right vision, the right attitude going forward. So we're going to turn in our Bibles today to look at this expecting harvest phrase. To Matthew chapter 9. And this is where the phrase expecting harvest even comes from. So if you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. Just simply put your hand up. And if you'd like, you can keep this Bible if you wish. Or you can just turn it in at the end of the service. Another option for you is if you have the Holy Bible app on your phone. If you go to the homepage on that, click on events. You'll find then Lancaster Evangelical Free Church at the top of that. And then you just push on that. And then you'll find all the scriptures we're going to use today. Including a cheat sheet of what the takeaways are today. So I uh, just want to let you know that is an opportunity that you can utilize off your phones. So expecting harvest. This comes out of a text in Matthew 9 where Jesus is in the process of doing ministry early on and basically guiding his disciples through the heart of what they're going to lead. Because there's going to come a point where Jesus is going to go back and be with the Heavenly Father. And he's going to release these disciples to lead the church forward. But he's teaching them along the way and sowing seeds of understanding of what they're going to need in order to lead the church. So a moment in Matthew chapter 9 in verse 35, which by the way is a nine, page 909 on the Bibles we just handed out. Jesus makes a, a point after experiencing a context that I think will be helpful for us to understand. So reading just 35 to start, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So, real quick, there's something even to learn from that. We typically, for those of us that, are, that have been reading the Bible a while, we typically remember two verses later. And we miss out on the context of why Jesus said what he said. So in this, the context is this. Jesus is going from village to village, town to town. And he's doing three things. He's teaching, he's proclaiming, and he's healing. In this, there's something to learn as we are to take after his cue his model for how to do ministry or to live life here, I think there's something we can learn from this verse alone. And the first one is this. It's about being present. So if we're going to expect any kind of harvest, which we'll define what that means here in a moment, if we're going to expect anything of God and of that happening here on this earth and that happening in northern Lancaster County, we have to be present. When Jesus would go to these different villages, the first thing he would do is he would go to the place that was kind of at the center of that village or town. 
And that was the synagogue. It was, yes, the place of worship, but it was also the central point of all life's activity in that culture. So Jesus would go there, and it was there that he would teach. Now, it's important to understand the difference between teaching and proclaiming. Teaching is giving understanding. Proclaiming is then, once understanding is understood, making a statement. So Jesus would go into these synagogues. They, they knew about this teaching called the coming Messiah. And so in their minds, after prophecies that had been written over several hundred years, they had developed a picture of what this coming Messiah would look like. Unfortunately, as time went on, their interpretations of those texts had led them to an understanding and a picture of a Messiah that was not quite accurate. And so Jesus would go into the synagogues. He would teach about, from these messianic texts, what they needed to understand and to bring greater clarity to those texts so that they would then understand what he was about to proclaim. You see... In order for a harvest to ever happen, and, and so now I want to define this. Harvest being a movement and growth of God that changes lives in mass. A growing harvest. You know, as you heard last week, that on a single ear of corn, 800 kernels of corn, 800 seeds on one kernel of corn. I mean, one ear of corn. And, and so if each stalk of corn has Two ears on it, that's 1,600 seeds that have been produced out of one. When you start multiplying that out, you can get a harvest really quick. In the same way, as we're expecting a harvest, what we are praying for as a church is that God would begin to work in people's lives in this region, in mass, to where they become in realization and understanding their need for God's work in their life, and in particular, that work being done through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, if they do not understand what their need is, how would they ever receive the message? So in this text, it says that He went into their synagogues and He taught them. He's taking what they know, but then giving them understanding that was lacking and then saying, he proclaimed the good news. Now, if he did not go on a journey to help them understand contextually their need for the good news, then the proclamation would fall on deaf ears. So context is hugely important. And Jesus knew that his audience, he knew that they were Hebrew, they knew, he knew what they were taught, he knew that what they're taught leads to him, but leads to an improper view of him. So he had to correct that, but he had to do that by being present with them and understanding where their understanding was limited. So a great illustration of this is Billy Graham. Many of you know him as the, the great evangelist that, that speak, spoke so powerfully and would fill big arenas and stadiums across our country and across the world. There are some nations where Billy spoke that the audience that he spoke to was the largest gathering of their people, still to this day. But one thing that Billy would do before he would travel to another country or even to a different part of the United States was that he would, for two months spend time reading their newspapers and reading their media reports 
and understanding their culture before he would ever show up. Because he wanted to make sure that as he communicated the gospel, that he would teach them from a context that they understood and then brought them to the context they needed to understand to understand the good news. So he would do this for two months. Now, the gospel message was always the same, but how he would context that gospel was related to the context of the listener. So Jesus is doing that right here. He knows it's a Hebrew audience. He's giving them context through what they had learned from the Hebrew scriptures. They needed to understand that the Messiah was coming to bring good news. Now, there's another one. For most people in the United States, the term gospel or good news has no meaning. Do you understand that? Because when you context the idea that good news means that it's in contrast to something that's not such great news. Good news means it's, it stands out. It's, it's going to bring something of joy because of a current context without that news. And therefore that news coming becomes good news. And the reason why the good news and gospel has no context is because this next word I'm about to say has zero context in our culture. And that's the term sin. Do you understand that in your lifetime, for those of you that are my age or older, that we've watched a culture that understood the term sin become a culture that has no clue what that actually means. So how in the world, if people do not know the definition of sin, how can they possibly understand that there is good news for them to hear if they don't understand something about the context of the term sin? So if you haven't figured that out and haven't known that, then there's no way for you to truly, effectively be able to be a part of God's harvest work if you don't understand the context of the culture you're actually living in. It's important to understand, this is not a Christian culture any longer. And it's also important to know, especially being in Lancaster County, that the approach of the church is not to separate from culture to where we become ignorant of culture, that we're no longer effective in culture, but rather to be in culture, not of culture. It's important to understand the language of that. To be in the culture so that we understand it, we get it, we understand where people are, so we know how to communicate to them, but we're not of that culture. Jesus was teaching people to understand because they understood the Messiah as a conquering general or a conquering king. They did not understand the coming Messiah as a redeeming king of all people. Even though it was in all the prophecies, they kept picking at certain aspects and then missing the greater picture. So Jesus taught and then he, as he's teaching them and they begin to understand this is about the ultimate redemption of all of mankind, then when you speak and proclaim the good news, you understand it as truly being good news. So he proclaims it. But there's also a platforming that is going on. Why would Jesus, if he was 
really, you know, again, wanting to create masses and hundreds and thousands of people following him, why didn't he just go on a, a show, a tour of the Middle East showing his powers? Because it says he healed the sick. He cured diseases. That's a show that would bring masses no matter where you went. Why didn't Jesus let that be the primary aspect of what he did? I think if that was all he did, then we wouldn't know enough to understand the context of the whole. We'd be too enamored with the sensational. But yet Jesus did do the sensational, just not as the primary. And I believe part of it was is that when he showed by, doing, by healing people and, re, and curing diseases, he showed that he had power and authority over everything. And then, by speaking the truth of the gospel in such a powerful way, he also showed his understanding was beyond anything they had. But it's what comes next in the passage that I think it's the combination of the power and authority and the heart of Jesus that gives him the platform to be heard. So let's continue reading in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, this is Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you see a new term added here? So he was teaching, he was proclaiming, he was then healing. So he's showing power and authority. He's showing that he is excellent and wise. But it's this next term, compassion that would cause somebody to will to follow. You see, I think one of the things the world is looking for even now, without even knowing the scriptures, is they're looking for a leader that has power and authority, that is effective and wise with words and actions, but also has a heart of compassion. We have great examples in our world of people that are wise and have power and authority and maybe even can use it well, but their heart seems lacking. There are others who seem to have big hearts, but they don't seem to have much brains. You know what I mean? And so we're like, is it possible that somebody with power and authority and wisdom can also have a heart that is compassionate and empathetic? You have it in Jesus. And because he was filled with compassion and he saw that they were harassed like sheep that had no shepherd, then he turns to his disciples for this teaching moment out of a compassionate heart for what are you seeing? And he says, these people are the harvest. Do you see it? The harvest is right here, and it's, it's huge, it's plentiful. But the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus basically says this, that when you see 
and understand the state of other people, compassion is birthed. The heart of compassion literally is birthed when you can see that somebody is in need of something great. But compassion only takes root and becomes active when you see that state of another person and you become someone who advocates and intervenes. See, compassion will not last if it's merely moved, but it is not moved to any kind of action. And then you also see that with Jesus, when he was moved to this point, now he's showing action. It's more than just been birthed in him. It is happening. It is rooted in him. But then he says, out of that compassion to his disciples, we've got to pray. You need to pray. And you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that the harvest will come. And that more harvesters participate. Now I find it interesting that Jesus says to disciples that he is preparing to lead the harvest post his ascension. So Jesus knows, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die on the cross, I am going to raise from the dead, I'm going to spend time with these disciples, and when I leave, they're the ones that's going to take care of the harvest. He knows this, and he says to them, when he's moved to compassion, you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And when you pray, pray that he'll send someone. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus knows he's sending them. So they're basically praying, God, send somebody to the harvest. And God says, great, I'm glad you asked, because I'm sending you. That's literally the moment that is happening here. So compassion is what then becomes the ultimate platform for the gospel. You see, Jesus was present. He understood his audience. He knew the context of their life. He knew what they were lacking in their understanding. Jesus also understood the context and need for the gospel to be understood. So knowing your audience and explaining the context of the gospel. And then... He gets the listening ear because he's showing power, authority, wisdom, and compassion. And here's where I would like to make sure that we're all on the same page. In the same way that people in our culture do not know the term sin. They would say, nobody's perfect. We get that phrase. But they don't know how to define that nobody's perfect. Because they also don't have the context that there's a perfect God who created mankind perfectly. But then that perfect mankind, when created, chose to disobey the perfect creator. Thus separating mankind from God. But God being holy and just... Demanded of that imperfection and that violation demanded that it be paid for. In the same way, if you commit a crime in the United States, justice will be served and there is a payment that must happen. So is true for all of us who are imperfect. 
is that even one violation between us and God means ultimate payment must be paid. God said that no one can be in my presence without perfection. They must be holy. And if that's the case, how can any one of us ever approach God? We're all fallen. But God has another side of himself that it's as complete as his justice side, and that's his love side. You see, he created us to be the way we are, to have a relationship with him. And so he, through his justice and his love, created a means by which we can be reconciled back to the Father God. So this payment could be paid for by another Adam, another mankind that comes from God and this is where Jesus Christ and that virgin birth that we just celebrated coming and being in perfection lived and continued to remain in perfection honoring God with everything he ever did comes to that point of decision where he does not have to die he could continue to live because he had not committed any sin but instead he chooses to be like a sacrificial lamb so that by his death his blood would then cover and pay for any of the sins you and I did. And as a result, when he died on that cross and that blood that was now capable of covering once and for all any of the sins completed by mankind, that once and for all it is now covered for those who will receive it as a gift of faith, then we would have then hope realized between us and God, that we can spend life forever with God. But that is the good news, is it not? But good news contrasted to what if you don't? What if you don't? You see, sin has to be paid for. And if you reject the one way that it can be paid, then you are left with nothing to offer God as payment. And when death becomes you, which will become all of us, and you stand before God, and if you have not by faith received Jesus Christ as the payment of your sin, and therefore giving you life and reconciliation between you and God, if you stand there without that, you stand with nothing to offer. And God says, depart from me. I never knew you. There was a place that he created we don't talk about it too often here. But it is true. It's in the scriptures and it's actually mentioned more often than heaven. And that's a place called hell or the lake of fire. And it says it was created for Satan and all the other fallen angels. But it says for those who have not by faith received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will join them in that eternal punishment which is described multiple times in Scripture as being the weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the pain and suffering never ends. In other words, a conscious, eternal punishment. If you choose to reject Jesus, that's where your final outcome will go. Knowing that, and realizing that by faith, something you didn't do, but was done by God himself, the very one who created the just end for all of mankind, is also the one that created the gracious end for all those who would receive him. It is good news. 
And do you realize that there are people, what I just explained, many of you are like, I know all this, but our culture does not. Do you understand that everything I just said, they don't get. If we say you need the good news, they'll be like, what good news are you speaking of? You need Jesus. Why do I need Jesus? Well, because you're a sinner. What's that? Do you get what I'm saying? You have to know the culture you're speaking to to be effective in seeing a harvest happen around you. And you have to give them context to understand the gospel. Just by saying, Jesus died for you, accept him as Lord and Savior, means nothing to them because they're like, what am I being saved from? So what I've just explained in the last seven or eight minutes is so important for people to understand their need for Jesus. So having said that, I'm speaking to you now as northern Lancaster County regional people. Some of you come south across the border out of Lebanon County. You use your passport to cross over. It's all good. But I think you'll understand what I'm about to say. This area is very much an agriculturally-based region. Even if you don't work in agriculture, you have to drive by agricultural entities to even get to this church. So you're going to get what I'm about to say. That in order for a harvest to ever happen, there is a requirement of development to get you there. And it's called cultivating. There is a preparation of the soil before corn could ever grow. You know, it doesn't just happen. They don't just throw corn seeds out on the fields. You know, they do things to make the soil receive it. They do a no-till approach now on many of them, but some of them do light tilling. But nonetheless, they do things to make that soil receive the seed and grow the seed well. You're going to experience very soon when the ground finally hardens really hard. All the poo that's been created by all those dairy cows will all of a sudden leave that big round concrete cylinder looking thing and will begin to be spread all over the fields around you. And welcome to Lancaster County where the number one spreading of manure in the country happens. More manure is spread here than any other county in the country. A great fact to know where we live. Use that as a promo for Lancaster County. Come live here where more manure is spread than any other place in the world. But all that is done to prepare soil so that the soil is able to receive it. Planting then now happens. We sow the seeds into that soil and corn begins to grow. And then the beautiful time of the fall happens and we begin to harvest it. The same thing is true in the process. When God is using this agricultural-based language in this section, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's speaking agriculturally, and it works. Think about this. Can you just up and say the gospel without any context or any relationship and find fruit? Rarely. Sometimes Maybe, but usually it's because other things have gone on in that person's life before you entered in. 
So there's a preparing of the heart to receive. It's building rapport. It's learning to know their context so that you know how to sow seeds of the gospel into it. So you begin to share out of what God's doing in your life and, and you share with them and they're receiving it because they see you love them and you care for them and that you're not just about convincing them and arguing with them. And then Lord willing, an opportunity to reap happens where you present and call for a response to the gospel. What a moment that is when you get to be a part of that. No greater moment, spiritually speaking, is there than seeing somebody bend the knee and say, I want you, Jesus, save me. No greater moment. But in the journey to that end, there's been a preparing of their heart to receive the truth of the gospel. And then they hear the gospel in many different ways through actions and deeds of others, but also through words. And it begins to make sense. But then as they see somebody whose life has been changed by the gospel, the good news, they begin to want it. And then the moment happens where the harvest happens in their soul. And they become part of God's table. So if you haven't picked up, it's a very simple way to remember this. That if you want to be a part of God's work for the harvest, be a part of CPR. Cultivating, planting, and reaping. You'll have different roles and different lives. I've been a part of people where I've spent a lot of time preparing their hearts to want to hear about the gospel. And then somebody else shares the gospel with them and they give their life to Christ. It's awesome. I would have loved to have been there. But the fact that they did it is all the celebration I need. There are times when I've led somebody to Christ and they make that decision with me. And others have been the one doing the hard work in their life. But this is the process that every heart goes through. There's a preparing for the heart. There's seeds of the truth of the gospel. The knowledge about the gospel. Understanding the gospel that's getting sown. And then the opportunity and awareness comes where they realize they need a savior. And they want a Savior. And they surrender to Jesus as Lord. So how do we walk out of here preparing for such a harvest? This is not unique to LEFC in that where there's prayers for such a harvest. Many pastors, as we've talked, have shared that we're praying that God would do something special. In this region where many come to Jesus... That the church begins to realize that we are calling all hands on deck to be workers of the harvest. We're all cultivating. It takes all of us living out lives that show that Jesus is worth giving your life to. And that that is preparing each person's heart by the testimony of God's work in your life. You're preparing each heart so that as different ones begin to tell the truth of the gospel. And it begins to be understood that they are ready to make the decision to say, Jesus, be Lord of my life and be my Savior. So as part of preparing for the harvest... I believe it begins, as Jesus says, pray for those that are in the harvest. Pray for your relational world. 
You see, when you go into the, the, the language of this text, the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, was written in the Greek. And so we, we go back to the original language. Whenever we talk about your relational world, where you have relationships, where you have influence, those that you can actually share the gospel with, those you could actually begin to prepare their hearts for receiving the gospel, they call it one word, oikos. It's simple Greek term. That means household. And in their day, your household was all those that crossed into your, your house and had relationship at your table. It wasn't just your immediate family. It wasn't just your extended family. It was all those that you had relationship with. The home was the center of culture. So Jesus says to his disciples, pray for those that are in the harvest field, that are ready. Your oikos. In your bulletins, we actually supplied you an oikos card. Because we want you to be reminded that God calls us to be praying for those around us. And there are people that are in your oikos that are unique to you that may, there may not be another believer in their life at this point in time. So if you are not praying for them, who is? If you're not preparing their heart, who will? So take this list, and by the end of the day, just fill out as many names as you can. Those that are in your immediate family, extended family, close friends, that you know that things that are upon your heart, if you share it with them, they would listen. And then just begin to pray for them. There's instructions on ways you can pray for them on the back of this card. And here's what I, why I believe Jesus began with the instructions to his disciples who are going to be the harvesters to begin with prayer. Because what I've learned is if you are mindful enough to begin to pray for somebody regularly, your heart begins to be burdened for them. And you start seeing that relationship differently. And if you're praying for them, compassion will be birthed. And compassion will become your mode of operandi when you choose to let that compassion lead to you becoming an advocate, an intervener in their life. So you have this opportunity to pray and let God move your heart. And once your heart is moved by God, your heart becomes like his heart. And you begin to see the opportunity to sow seeds of the good news. Which is the next point. So we sow seeds of the good news by both actions and the things we do and the words we say. Galatians chapter 6, I'll have it up on your screen, says this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary then in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. So in that point one where I said, pray for those in your relational world and your oikos. And pray so that, that God can move your heart and you become stirred to action. The text I did not read, which is in Luke chapter 18 is a story where Jesus is sharing a parable that says, don't give up praying. Never give up praying. Some people on your oikos list, you might pray for years. 
My grandfather, for 17 years, watched my father live out the gospel before he gave his life to Christ. 17 years. My father went from being a town bully and drunkard to being somebody that was actually serving the kingdom of God. And my grandfather could not understand it. And for 17 years, asked questions and would just simply shake his head. And even tolerated me as a 10-year-old getting into his lap saying, Grandpa, please give your life to Jesus because I don't want you going to hell. He withstood all of that. And it wasn't for another five or six years later before he finally gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then he became a leader in the church and began to lead men's groups at, at the Pizza Hut. See, we say it like that there because there's only one within like miles. So in rural Kansas, you go to the Pizza Hut and they had this men group that would pray together and, and they would get in the word together. And my grandfather led that. See, you don't give up. 17 years. No inkling of a decision being made. And all of a sudden, change happens. One thing this text also says is that everybody here in this room, everybody here in this room, sows something. You're either sowing of a, of a fleshly life where it's all about you, your own attitude, your own authority, your own ideas, your own, own uh, set of how things should be done. You just live that out and your attitude just quite frankly stinks up other people's attitudes. It sows and it replicates. But for those whose lives are driven and led by the Holy Spirit, which comes from a different set of fruit, if you are going there, your life will then produce a harvest if you don't give up. Which then leads to the next point, that if we believe this and we're praying that way and we're sowing things from the Spirit, we're to call by God to say, you know what? If you begin to sow by the Spirit and you do so generously out of compassion, watch the harvest happen. 2 Corinthians 9 verses 6 to 11 says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly whoever sows generously will also reap generously each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times having all that you need you will abound in every good work as it is written they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving for God. Which then means if you sow out of the Spirit, and you keep doing so, and you do so generously, God's like, I'm going to feed that fire. I'm going to keep feeding that fire. And I'm going to keep giving to the one that's going to keep giving it away. And I'll keep giving them more. So if you want to see a harvest happen in your oikos, pray. And then begin to sow seeds out of that relationship with God. And then as you begin to sow seed, continue to do so generously. And then lastly, trust God for the results. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, says, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe. 
As the Lord assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Paulus watered it, but God has been the one making it to grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are God's co-workers in his service. God's field. God's building. You see, we can plant seeds. We can cultivate the ground. But we cannot create the decision for them to choose Christ. The old adage, I can lead a horse to water, but I can't force the horse to drink it. I mean, we're in a culture where we should get that one. You can't force a horse to drink the water, but you can lead him there. The same thing is true. We can't cause somebody to choose Christ, but we can help them know their opportunity to do so. It will be God's work that will cause them to drink. This is an opportunity. We've just spoken the gospel. And Jesus gave us a means by which we will never forget the source of the good news. He gave us this table. So we're going to finish this service by participating in the root of our faith, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For all those who are going to help serve, would you please come at this time? Let's pray. Jesus, I have been praying for a harvest since 2008. When you put it on my heart, by reading this text, that there's so much, so many people around us that are in need of Jesus. And we often look at it as a barrier rather than as an opportunity. So God, work in our hearts to see that the harvest is truly plentiful. And that we begin to pray for those in our oikos. And that we begin to sow seeds of the good news that this table reflects. So in this moment, let this table be a testimony to your work in our lives and a testimony to those who came in who do not even have that relationship. So I pray this in the name of Jesus. And to your glory, God. Amen. As a church, we practice what is called open communion, which means that anybody who is, declares Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is welcome to participate with us in this table, whether or not this is your church home. But I would like to also invite, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you can do so right now. I've shared the gospel this morning. I've given you context. It's up to you to decide. I can't force you to drink it. But I encourage you to consider giving yourself over to Jesus Christ now and saying, Lord, I recognize I am indeed a sinner and that I'm separated from you. And I believe that your work is a sufficient sacrifice for me. And then ask him and invite him to become your Lord, your leader, and your Savior. And then you can participate in this in this very moment. Use the time and the space as we pass these elements out, to make that decision. All I ask is that we each receive the two elements, hold on to them until we're all ready to take together, and then we'll all take together at the end.
So the gospel's message spoken on the night before he was crucified was simply his body had ultimately been for them. Everything he did in that body was to bring glory to God and give us understanding for the life that God meant for us. So we take of this body and this bread now in memory of that. Then sometime later at the table, and again, this is where context means everything. They had grown up as Hebrew young people, knowing that the Passover was celebrated to talk about a Passover that had happened centuries before, of understanding that God provided a means by which they would be protected from death. There was a covenant that was underneath that that God would see that the covering of sin and the protection from its judgment was through blood, a perfect lamb, or two young birds. But Jesus said something at that table. It said, this is a, my blood, a new covenant, a once and for all sacrifice. The temporal sacrifices of animals and, uh, are no longer needed. This will cover once and for all your sins. So take of this blood, not forgetting what I am offering to you. And so they took it together. So let's do so now. Jesus, it's in your name that we have any hope of any reconciliation with God. Your Father who is holy, and fully just, but yet filled with love, sent you to be our bridge. And we say thank you. We have not forgotten. And we remember in this moment. But I ask that if there was anybody here in this room, that you would then draw them to the water. That only you can do. And help them taste of the work you want to do in their life. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Father, for your compassion and love that led to this entire story. For it's in your son's name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? You'll have the opportunity to throw these cups away on the way out the door. But as you walk out of this building, you will not have a hard time seeing the construction around you. That's simply creating space. Not my aim. Not my goal. Not our goal. Expecting a harvest? Yes. That's our heart. That's our prayer. And that comes by the people who call themselves as children of God. Heirs of the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. It's by each one being faithful to the gospel, cultivating, planting, and reaping, all as part of the gospel journey of another's life. Let that be what happens in this church and the churches around us so that a harvest can come. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless.